This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute Director of Scholarly Initiatives, Dr. Anthony Eames, sits down with Dr. Tom Carrico, who serves as the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Dr. Aaron Bateman, who is an assistant professor of history and international affairs at George Washington University. They discuss the 40th anniversary and legacy of the Strategic Defense Initiative laid out during the Reagan administration and its implications on America's modern-day missile defense capabilities. All right, Reaganism podcast listeners, thank you for joining us today. I am Anthony Eames, guest host and director of scholarly initiatives at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. And I'm very pleased to be joined here today by Tom Caracal, senior fellow and director of the Missile Defense Project the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Aaron Bateman, Assistant Professor of History and International Affairs at George Washington University and an expert at the Space Policy Institute. We have the two of you here with us today to talk 40 years of the Strategic Defense Initiative, ballistic missile defense, missile defense issues um, that are facing us today uh, and everything over the last four decades. And I should note that this is a bit of a recap for the three of us. Uh, we seem to have been on a circuit the last few months, starting with a wonderful event. Tom hosted us at the C- uh, CSIS on uh, 40 years of missile defense. And, and Aaron, you, of course, hosted us at the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University for the past, present, and future of missile defense. So we should have a lot to talk about today. We, we didn't have enough to discuss at those conferences, so we thought we'd do it one more time. That's right. And, uh, of course, uh, there's... New things to discuss today in light of the recent reports of Patriot missiles successfully shooting down uh, Russian munitions and Russian missile attacks over Kiev and throughout the country. Uh, Tom, what do you think about that? I mean, what, what would Reagan think about that? Hey, somewhere, uh, Ronald Reagan is looking down and smiling that American uh, missile defense interceptors are taking out Russian missiles. So. Look, if the initial reports are true, and it sounds like uh, that they are uh, at least at least one, and it sounds like uh, a number of let's just say sophisticated air-launched ballistic missiles, as well as some some cruise missiles, uh, over the past week have been been taken out. That's a uh, uh, whatever else is true about their specific characteristics and speed and all that kind of jazz. Uh, this is, uh, I think, an impressive achievement. Uh, the United States. Developed systems uh, have been over there in the form of what's called the NASAMs, that uh, Norwegian, uh, uh, it's an acronym. I'm, I'll, I'll remember it later here. Um, uh, it's been taking out cruise missiles for, for some time here. But uh, this is a little harder challenge. And so this is, uh, I guess, a step forward uh, in terms of certainly the air and missile uh, war that's been going on for low these 14 some months. And this does seem to mark as you say, a step forward, if reports are true, that it may have taken out some hypersonic missiles, which would indicate a new new uh, frontier in its effectiveness and capabilities. Sure, I, th- I think so. You know, it's probably the Kinzels are more of a somewhat maneuvering ballistic missile than what folks usually think of as a gliding, sustained and controlled flight in the hypersonic regime. But nevertheless, it's a it's a wicked hard missile. It's a Russian missile. And so it's, it's something new as well. So something new, uh, but let's go back to something old, uh, four decades old, that is. Aaron, uh, 
Tom just said somewhere Ronald Reagan's probably smiling that uh, Russian missiles are being shot out of the sky. 40 years ago, was this the vision that Reagan had for the Strategic Defense Initiative? Well, I think that one of the big misnomers is that SDI was just one thing. It was one program designed to go after one threat, and that was Soviet strategic missiles, Soviet ICBMs. Reagan did indeed have this lofty vision that SDI was going to lead to a world without nuclear weapons. But if we actually look at what SDI did and what it became and how it evolved, it was really an umbrella for multiple different research initiatives to be able to defeat a wide variety of missile threats and even thinking about defeating things like cruise missiles. Um, and so building off some some comments that Tom has made around town recently, you know, if we tend to think about missile defense in terms of ballistic missile defense, when in reality, it's it's about going after a wide variety of threats. And so thinking about integrated air defense, going after missiles, all different kinds of ranges, cruise missiles, uh, different kinds of air threats. And so all of that, all of those kinds of priorities we find within the Strategic Defense Initiative organization. And ultimately, and, and I should say that SDIO is, is the organization that managed uh, strategic defense initiative uh, research and development programs. Um, and ultimately, the programs under the moniker of SDI evolved as geopolitical conditions changed. So as U.S.-Soviet relations improved, there's not quite as much funding for things like space-based interceptors. But I think what's really important to understand is that SDI's mandate was much broader and much more uh, encompassing than just going after one specific kind of missile threat. I, I think that's very well said. I think it's an important point uh, to emphasize, and it's it's also a very uh, current point uh, in terms of how we think about uh, air and missile defense for the, you know, not just the big strategic attack on the homeland thing, as, as you point out, Aaron, but, you know, whatever it is that the missiles are holding at risk or threatening uh, from China, from Russia, or the like. And so as we think about the the initiatives, the programs, the investments that are going on, you know, why are we doing this? And I, I think about the Strategic Defense Initiative speech in March of, of 1983. And, you know, people forget, they like to quote those, those memorable, you know, uh, lines from the end about making uh, these things impotent and obsolete. But most of the speech was about ICBMs and about ICBM survivability. And so therefore, you know, thinking about, missile defense and SDI within the broader context of our whole deterrence and defense goals. That's, that's always a perennial concern. And so as we think about deterring China today, deterring them from uh, taking uh, Taiwan or from attacking Guam, or we think about, we see on a, on a weekly basis now, how active air and missile defenses are actually stabilizing and are slowing the Russian advance in Ukraine and are complicating their ability and, and frankly, impeding them, uh, precluding them from establishing air superiority over Ukraine. You kind of see the strategic logic of it. And I think always putting it in that context, as opposed to this, this boutique thing, this kind of pet project, you know, as I think I give the, the Biden administration officials uh, credit, I think it was recently uh, just, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, John Hill, who said that, look, missiles are a central function of how our adversaries uh, threaten people and hold them at risk and coerce them. And as a result, missile defense is central to what they call integrated deterrence and, and, and the like. And so it's not special anymore. It's not a, it's not a, a weird niche uh, thing. It's just fundamental and central to 
warfare today. That's right. And, you know, Aaron, I think you'll remember if we go all the way back 40 years ago, and Tom, you mentioned the ICBMs being a big part of that speech. Of course, the Scowcroft Commission comes out with their own uh, recommendations about a month later on the basing of the MX Peacekeeper missile. So there was the offense-defense component of that deterrence equation. Um, we're going to run through the alphabet soup of agency names today. And Aaron, you had invoked SDIO. Um, certainly SDIO is no longer with us today, but there are uh, a number of successor agencies that have you know, taken up the missile defense mantle. Um, there's also some other agencies that have kind of taken the talent, the human capital, the technological spinoffs from that that organization. Can you give me a little sense of how SDIO's mission has evolved? Tom, you can chime in on this too, um, in an institutional uh, sure. sense. Yeah, I think it's important to, to state from the outset that what SDIO does is it really institutionalized missile defense in one house in the United States. Of course, missile defense research was going on prior to SDI, but what it does is it brings all of this together under one institutional base uh, within the Department of Defense. So uh, ultimately what happens is after the Cold War comes to an end, SDIO is renamed the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization or BIMDO, and then it's subsequently renamed the Missile Defense Agency. Um, but today in the missile defense sphere, we have a number of, of players in the game in the U.S. context. So we have the Missile Defense Agency, but we also have an organization now called the Space Development Agency, which came into existence in the last administration. And SDA is, is looking at a wide variety of national security space applications but one in particular that's critical for missile defense is putting sensors in space that can be able to track a wide variety of missile threats cradle to grave. Um, we oftentimes like to think about the interceptors and how you're actually going to defeat different kinds of missile threats, but you can't do that if you don't know where the, um, the adversary missile is at a given point in time. And so when we think about the genealogy of the current missile defense architecture and some of the concepts that are being discussed, like having larger numbers of sensors and different orbital regimes that can track these very advanced missile threats, we actually see a lot of continuity with SDIO. So SDIO is really focused not just on being able to develop sophisticated interceptors, but also really advanced space sensors that could be able to track uh, short, medium range, and, and intercontinental ballistic missiles, as, as well as other kinds of threats. And so we see a lot of those ideas now coming back due to the, the threat environment that Tom was talking about earlier. We have uh, non-state threats. Um, we also have uh, increasingly sophisticated Russian and Chinese threats. And so having a more robust missile defense architecture uh, that can both track and defeat uh, a wide variety of missile systems is increasingly important, and, and we can really trace a lot of these key developments in the last couple of years back to the SDIO era. Yeah, I think that's well said, and uh, probably about five, six years ago, I started arguing and, uh, that we, we need to think about the uh, about missile defense as an enterprise in the way that we ha had been about the nuclear enterprise, and just in addition to uh, to the entities that Aaron rattled off, I mean, we, we began with this by talking, or I began this by talking about how it's missile defense is becoming less special because it's central to just our way of war, the centrality of, of fires and missiles, essentially. And as such, you're, you're seeing in, in a way the, the institutionalization in one house, uh, that is true. It's important. I believe it's critical to, to retain that. At the same time, you also see the services, which is the place from which many of these activities were kind of hoovered up and put under SDIO. 
they're doing still a lot of relevant stuff. I mean, the Patriot, the, the Pac-3 missile that was shooting that stuff down, that's not in MDA. That's under the Army right now. Uh, it has been since the Missile Defense Agency was was stood up in uh, in two thousand and uh, in uh, two thousand and four time period, and the Navy has its Integrated Warfare System uh, Program Executive Office. DARPA is doing stuff that you know because of these these things matter. Of course, they're doing all kinds of research on that. And likewise, or, or excuse me, a different aspect of the institutionalization of this is in part the focus. Focus helps a lot in terms to to to, to get something done. But first SDIO, then BIMDO, then the Missile Defense Agency, which was kind of keyed to the uh, withdrawing from the ABM treaty, which had precluded us even under Reagan and all this other stuff from actually fielding much national missile defense, so-called. Uh, but, but the other thing about the, the MDA in particular is the acquisition authorities and that it was built and, and designed, purpose-built, to be able to centralize what we in the acquisition world are kind of decision points about a program's advance to centralize it in one person uh, so that they could, could go a little faster and kind of circumvent some of the perennial bureaucratic problems. That's literally how MDA was, was, was built. And it's been a perennial kind of dis policy discussion of, you know, is that good is, or they should be subject to the general kind of more, more bureaucratic uh, process of the of other parts of the Pentagon, and I would actually think that in the past several years, the refrain, the mantra has been towards more rapid ap uh, acquisition authorities and the several services. Everybody's kind of been on this this beat, which is, hey, how do we go faster? How do we how do we buy stuff and build stuff and build stuff faster? Well, MDA was kind of built to do that before it was cool for. The department writ large and now you see the army navy the air force everybody's got a rapid acquisition office and i'm not going to uh, bore you with the acronyms for all those i'm just going to allude to them and so i think the that's the other aspect of the institutionalization that's important and it's important not to forget uh because in a way it's you're, you're hearing about it so much but it's important not to forget it for the missile defense world too um so i think one other thing that's really important to emphasize for the the listeners today building off something that tom just mentioned is missile defense is an all domain activity and i think if we if we go back to the sdio era there was a tendency to characterize it as well it's a space laser program and as i, I mentioned earlier obviously sdio involved a lot more than just lasers in space um, but even today uh, we have missile defense sensors in space but we also have terrestrial sensors um, the navy has sea-based sensors and so it's it's critical to understand that this is not just a land or a, a space um, activity, but all domains are, are really critical. There's a, a an agency or a service here that has been floating in the background, not yet mentioned, but probably has the best uniforms uh, <laughs> in in the country right now. Space Force. Uh, Tom, Aaron, tell us a little bit about what we can expect the relationship to be between Space Force and the Missile Defense Agency and how that might affect how we go about fielding these highly important capabilities. Well, I, I would say um, it, it is, it, it always has been, and it still is emphatically a multi-domain problem. Things come from, from one domain, they travel probably through a couple domains and a couple combatant commands on the way to, to getting to their target. Uh, it's kind of in the nature of, of things. Um, I will say the, the President Biden just signed out a new unified command plan uh, that that has a a new role for space command, 
uh, in terms of a what's called a global sensor manager. And so being able to task the radars on a ship or the radars up in Alaska or what have you to look for things, to look for things in space that may be missiles and that may be satellites, they may be things that are orbiting for a while and then come back down. And that, I think, is a reflection of the increased salience uh, for for uh, for space and for space for missile defense. So in some ways, it's a return to the past. Uh, and that, that sort of organizational change is a reflection of that. Uh, you're also talking, though, about the Space Force. Uh, you mentioned the uniforms. Um, and there is some ideas, there are some ideas in circulation about, you know, should we reorganize and perhaps consolidate, uh, say, our missile defense efforts uh, in a single service, such as the Space Force. And there's been some some kind of noise in the press uh, about that uh, of late. And I guess I'm, I'm cautious about that. Uh, this is very much a national problem. It is a multi-service problem. And oh, by the way, the Missile Defense Agency was was stood up and it is its charter, its definition is of a layered and integrated uh, system. It's a single uh, acquisition program, major defense acquisition program in the Pentagon. And I guess I wonder if putting all of our missile defense uh, eggs in the basket of a single service, so even if it's a space force, it might be really good for the space parts, but boy, I worry about breaking the program. And I worry about what it might do for uh, Aegis, the Aegis ship-based defense. I worry about the, uh, the some of the ground-based, like the Army's THAAD, and, and yes, the, the Patriot Pac-3 missiles as well. The 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 secret to, the secret sauce here is that phrase uh, layered and integrated. And I, I I wonder a little bit about putting all that under the Space Force, uh, the kind of secondary and tertiary problems that might be created by kind of cleaving the the system or the problem in two. So, so more, more to come on that, but I think it's always important to try to ask what's the problem you're trying to solve with some kind of organizational shift and uh, what problems could you be creating uh, by those kinds of organizational changes as well. Aaron, any thoughts on that? Um, so I think Tom very effectively covered the, the present state of the debate. I'll just add that um, if we look at U.S. Space Command and I'll just highlight here is space command is the combatant commands space forces of course the, the military service the services are there to train and equip forces for combatant commands um u.s space command as tom alluded to is not new um it was disestablished in the early 21st century but uh the space command was actually established in large part um, because of sdi and the reagan administration's um uh, concept or view of sdi was that it would or excuse me of uh, u.s space command is that it would become the operational arm for a full-up strategic defense system. And so there's an intimate connection between uh, the, the organizations that are carrying out national security space activities in the Department of Defense and, and missile defense. And that goes all the way back to the uh, the early days of SDIO. I, 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 Aaron pointed out earlier the, the salience and the increased salience of threats that are uh, in the atmosphere, you know, beneath the 100-kilometer line. And that's kind of what I, what I worry about is precisely because you're seeing and the threat has gone since, let's just say, 1991, and we talked about Brian Pebbles, the threat has gone lower, and it's become more atmospheric and more maneuverable. And it's it's great. I want us to be doing more in space, but boy, there's a whole lot of aerial and high atmosphere threats to include lots of the hypersonic jazz um, that I worry might uh, might get forgotten. 
Well, let's talk specific capabilities. Tom, you just invoked Brilliant Pebbles. Aaron, I know you have a lot to say on Brilliant Pebbles. Tom, I hope you have something to say on what we call next generation interceptor, the NGI. But uh, Aaron, why don't you give us a little sense of, of, of Brilliant Pebbles, its promise, its peril, uh, everything else? Sure. So when Reagan makes a speech in March 1983, um, there isn't really a firm concept at that time of what what is strategic defense going to entail. There's a grand vision, but not really much of a, an infrastructure in place. And so if we fast forward to the end of the Reagan administration, now the Department of Defense actually does have a concept for what a strategic defense system is going to look like. And it's really going to consist of, of two parts. One is the space layer so sensors for tracking, but also space-based interceptors, and then ground-based interceptors. So Brilliant Pebbles becomes the, the program for the space interceptor layer. And what it's really intended to be is thousands of these interceptors in space um, that would be designed to go after ICBMs and their boost phase of flight. And the, uh, the, the reason they were called Brilliant is because they would have a whole sensor suite on board that would allow them to track uh, missile threats. The other big concern was resiliency and survivability of Brilliant Pebbles. And so earlier concepts had a bunch of interceptors housed in a garage in low Earth orbit. The problem is those would have been uh, sitting ducks for Soviet anti-satellite weapons. So the idea was we're going to have the interceptors, uh, to use current parlance, proliferated. So that's going to make them more survivable and a, a much more effective system. Um, but ultimately, Brilliant Pebbles would not come to fruition. Uh, because when Bill Clinton comes into office, uh, he decides to cut funding for the space-based interceptor layer. Um, and since that time, space-based interceptors have been nothing more than really, there's been nothing more than low-level R&D at, at different points, but we've never actually seen any deployment of these kinds of systems. So, so uh, Anthony, in terms of kind of where we are today, uh, Aaron alluded to kind of the brilliant pebbles piece of the one of the many uh, SDI SDIO era architectures, but um, what we call today ground-based interceptors or GBIs, and we have about 44 deployed in, in Alaska and California today, they were actually the underlay to the space uh, layer. They were there to, to catch what, uh, what the what, what, uh, space-based interceptors missed because uh, it was always a layered, uh, a layered approach. And when you, you, you took off the big layer, you kept the underlay essentially, um, and furthermore, we have today only really one main site with I think a grand total of four interceptors in uh, in California. Uh, that's a small, it's a shadow compared to what even the Clinton administration was conceiving. And it had three phases for, for national missile defense, as it called, you know, for with maybe a couple hundred of ground-based interceptors. So what we have today is very modest compared to even the Clinton uh, administration's architecture, let alone uh, the the Reagan and so what what are ground based interceptors? Look, it was a paper concept in the in the eighties. Uh, started developing in really in the nineteen nineties, um, and the Clinton administration decided at the very end there were some test failures and they didn't go forward to to deployment. Uh, the George W. Bush administration comes in and says, "Yes, we are." And by the way, we're going to get out of the the ABM treaty, and we're going to furthermore take basically that nineteen nineties era design. And we're going to build it very rapidly, and we're going to field it by September of 2004. And they did that. That was kind of the first generation of the the, the GBIs, the ground-based interceptors. And then that that's there. There's always the intent to evolve it uh, on a block or incremental or spiral development, as you prefer, uh, over the over the years. But it 
kind of didn't get much of that evolution. And about the 2010 timeframe, there were some another kind of spat of test failures. And they said, okay, we're going to take a look at this. And next couple of years, they said, okay, we're going to go in and fix fix the kill vehicle that sits atop these things and improve it. And what we'll get, uh, in fact, we're going to field some additional of these things by, by 2017. So between 2014 and 2017, they did that. And furthermore, the intent was to replace those, those older designs with a, a redesigned kill vehicle or RKV. The Trump administration comes in and says, actually, no, we're going to cancel that. And we're going to start over uh, with a clean all up round, a new missile. And that's, uh, Anthony, what's called the, the next generation interceptor or NGI. And according to press reports, that interceptor is bigger and it is includes multiple things atop. So instead of just one to go after a warhead, it has multiple to go after uh, a target. So that's kind of the program of record right now. It's a big undertaking. It's the, the biggest uh, program within the Missile Defense Agency's budget right now, over $2, $2 billion uh, a year uh, to kind of make sure that that is a reliable, a very conservative acquisition strategy. And I think that makes makes a lot of sense. So this is in a way the third bite at the apple for getting the GBI problem right. And we really got to get it right because I don't think there'll be a fourth bite. Tom, you've just laid out uh, kind of the development of missile defense capabilities um, following the 1980s. Uh, I wonder if the American public in general has a sense of those capabilities given how Missile defense has been betrayed uh, in pop culture and movies and film and television. Certainly, we're not here to promote Netflix, but there was a movie just on missile defense and Netflix. And I'm sure Aaron can tell us all about uh, the cultural representations of SDI. Um, has it misunderstood what we're trying to do with missile defense, Aaron? The thoughts? Yeah, so I, I think uh, many of our listeners will recall that. Very shortly after Reagan makes his March 1983 speech, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy says, you know, this is Star Wars technology that the president is referring to and the name Star Wars actually sticks. Uh, some SDI supporters like that the Star Wars moniker Reagan um, did not um, really thought it caricatured the whole program or the set of programs being pursued under SDI. And I, I think that that pop culture representation really shaped the way that many people at the time thought about missile defense, both pro and against that. There were people who really believed that SDI was going to be this space laser program that was going to be able to take out all Soviet ICBMs in this futuristic manner. We'll have war in space and not on Earth. Uh, and we also have to remember that in the 1980s, there was a lot of hyperbole about space war, about laser weapons just fundamentally revolutionizing the nature of conflict. Um, and even after the Cold War comes to an end, if we think about the James Bond movie, Goldeneye, you have this doomsday laser. Um, and so that's really coming off of this, this wave of both, uh, in some cases, excitement, other cases, anxiety about these futuristic weapon systems. But unfortunately, what that presentation of SDI did is it, it's really, I think, uh, made a lot of people think about missile defense in a very narrow way. Um, in a really unrealistic way and missing a lot of the nuances that I think that we've captured uh, earlier um, today and what the actual goals of, of U.S. missile defense were in the 1980s um, and certainly in the present time. 
And I'll just say every time I give a talk on SDI, I have at least one person in the audience who asked me, well, wasn't SDI just a space laser program? And so I think that's a testament to 40 years later, how much that pop culture representation really affected the way that people perceived SDI. Tom, has it gotten better since GoldenEye? <laughs> hey, that space laser is pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to have an R&D program for that. But I, I, actually, it's a fascinating thing, the discussion of how Hollywood, of how uh cinema are kind of used as as either manifestations or kind of sometimes i would say uh, trial balloons for technology i mean I, I think for instance about the the transformer movies about kind of ai and autonomy and things like and robotics and things like that before it was before it was cool but but no, i think i think that's right i think that um there's a there's a very bad corny movie called deterrence i think from the late 1990s where Uday and Kusei in Iraq basically sends them some ICBMs at the United States, and there are interceptors that, that take them out. Uh, this is, I think, to Aaron's point, somehow it's useful, but but it can be misleading. Air defense is hard. Missile defense is hard. It's, it's blocking and tackling, uh, and it's a, a cacophony of small problems that have to be solved in, in time and space to intercept an aircraft to intercept uh, a simple missile, let alone these more complex things. But yeah, uh, popular culture and movies are often used to socialize these things. I like to point out that it was the rise of the Silver Surfer uh, that kind of popularized what we would call today a hypersonic glide vehicle uh, before it was cool. So it's, it's useful to, to socialize uh, ideas and concepts that may, not, may not be out there more widely. I'm going to take that with me for the next time I teach a class on uh on any of these issues, yeah, Silver Surfer, Glide Vehicles. Okay, well, um, you know, one of the things that, that Hollywood seems to, to lay out is there's only one definition of success for these systems. Uh, and it seems that we've been kind of, in, in this conversation and, of course, throughout our previous meetings, uh, talking about there's actually many definitions of success when it comes to missile defense. Aaron, Tom, you have some thoughts on that, I'm sure. Aaron, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I think this is one of perhaps, at least for me, one of the most frustrating aspects of the debate on missile defense is uh, oftentimes it's treated as a dichotomous, you're either successful or you're not successful. And if we go back to the 1980s, this was really a key part of the public debate that you had a lot of scientists lining up and saying, well, you can never create a 100% perfect defense, therefore this is a useless program. And and then you had folks that were on the other side of the aisle saying, well, that's actually not what we're trying to do here. And when we look back in the archival record, 100% effective defense against all that was never a requirement that was levied on SDIO. Um, and certainly in the second half of the 1980s, we find the Joint Chiefs of Staff requirements for a deployed strategic defense system was being able to take out a broad or being able to take out about 30% of a Soviet ICBM barrage. 30% was for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that was their definition of a successful strategic defense capability. So someone might step back and say, well, 30%, you know, how is that really effective? Well, it depends on what your end state is. And so um, I'll use Margaret Thatcher here very briefly as an example. Margaret Thatcher believed that if the Soviets were convinced that you could take out a sizable minority of their strategic nuclear forces, that would enhance deterrence, that that would give the Soviets a moment of pause before employing nuclear weapons in a preemptive strike. So if your objective is to enhance deterrence and you're really convinced that even a, you know, let's call it a partially effective, if we're talking about overall numbers of Soviet ICBMs, being able to take out a, um, 
30% of Soviet ICBMs, if you think that's going to enhance your deterrent posture, then that could meet your definition of success. Um, and so even today, when people say, well, missile defense is not effective, uh, my first response is, well, what is the end state that you're talking about? Because the Missile Defense Agency, for example, today does not say our objective is to be able to take out 100% of all missile threats. There's there's much more refined, sophisticated, and granular objectives. Um, and so effectiveness and success, um, those seem like these absolute terms that we should all have a, an understanding of what they mean, but actually the definitions vary considerably based on what interest group you're talking about. I think that's important because the, I, I would say the debate has been ill-served by exactly that kind of uh, false dichotomy that you're you're referencing there, uh, there, Aaron. I mean, if you can, if if the metric of efficiency is they don't attack because you have introduced enough doubt in their mind that they're not going to accomplish their objectives and it's going to be a very bad day for them in terms of our retaliation, uh, then that's a pretty that is a, a still a, a black and white metric that is that's useful, and I, but I would I would I would also shift the debate a little bit. And I think one of the reasons that this has been distorted and I would say susceptible to ideological uh, baggage is that the discussion, and it was more true in the '80s than today, is always through the prism of big nuclear attack. And what I believe, and we're seeing this in the Yemen missile war since 2015, but we're seeing it today in Ukraine and in spades is, no, there is an enormous um, space for what was in previous years kind of sometimes looked down upon as merely theater or merely regional missile defense, but, but for the problem of what might be called non-nuclear strategic attack. Because if Kiev goes away, or if Guam goes away or airfields on Guam go away without any radiation being released, that's a very bad day. That is a strategic event. And so if if Russia can accomplish its goals through the use of various forms of missilery, uh, that's what missile defense is for. And this is why I'm such a broken record on yes, we've got to do all the ICBM stuff. Of course you got to do that from the, the rogue states. But where the center of gravity is on this for me today is the non-nuclear strategic attack via air and missile uh, delivery systems that, that would operate beneath the nuclear threshold. That's what, that's what we have to worry about from Russia and Ukraine today. That's what we got to worry about from, uh, from China with respect to Taiwan and Guam and Japan and all that kind of stuff. So, so I've been on a, a crusade to make uh, theater and regional missile defense great again, uh, and not be looked down upon. That's that's where the threat's at. <laughs> that's where the uh, the action is right now. And we really got to make sure that there's that uh, attention to it, and not just sort of disregard it as you know less uh, less manly and less red meat than the big uh, ICBM defense. Well, I we've covered a lot of ground here today, and what I want to ask both of you um, are: what are the hard choices? What are the hard decisions? we need to make about missile defense moving forward. Um, and also maybe what are the hard choices and decisions that our allies and adversaries might need to make about missile defense moving forward? So I would say we're seeing some of those choices being made by our, our allies, for instance. Uh, and I might start there. And so Australia actually just put out a new uh, defense secure, uh, strategic review document. And they're pretty upfront about this. They say, uh, as uh, 
we've talked about, I've talked about for a number of times over the years, it, Australia says we're in a new missile age. And so therefore, Australia's benefit of geography no longer protects them anymore. And as a result, they announced some force uh, structure changes. They say, okay, we can have less on ground vehicles, and they have to prioritize two things, offensive missiles, strike, long-range precision fires, and integrated air and missile defense. So you see folks like Australia moving out on exactly this because of the centrality of, of missile threats and missile adjacent uh, missile adjacent threats. You see Japan doing something similar, uh, you know, significantly improving their defense budget uh, and getting both 400 Tomahawks and they, they want to be in on the action for hypersonic defense and everything else as well. For us, I think uh, it's, it's making that transition that we were just talking about, Anthony, to no kidding, focusing on the regional and the air and missile threats for the things that we can't move or hide that we absolutely must defend, like the defense of Guam, like certain critical nodes here uh, in the United States. And we ought to be paying attention to, to Ukraine. You can't defend everything, but there are some things that you really need to have uh, air and missile defense for. And uh, within the acquisition world, you know, the, the, the saying goes that there's capability, uh, there's cost and there's schedule, and you have to pick two to prioritize. Uh, and that's always a perennial problem. Uh, balancing, you know, theater versus regional versus hypersonic versus cruise missile defense versus ICBM defense. It uh, has to be a mix. There's always the, the trade-off between the, what you can get this decade and kind of advanced research and development for the next. So it's always going to have to be a trade. But as I look at it, you know, I just think it's really important that we make sure to get the space sensors that will track uh, and, and give fire control solutions to to our interceptors, be they for ballistic missile defense or for hypersonic defense. And I think that the, the hypersonic defense is, is really the, the vanguard because the, the maneuvering threat is kind of the future. And whether it's a particular kind of glider, whether a particular silver surfer threat or something else, it, things are going to become more maneuverable and harder to track. And, and so I think those programs are, are especially important uh, from where I sit. Aaron? So I'll, I'll uh, zero in on, on two things because I think Tom really effectively uh, encapsulated where we where we sit today. So in thinking about missile defense technologically, I would just add that we really also need to be thinking about resilience for the space layer because as Tom mentioned, the space layer is so critical. So putting more sensors in space in different orbital regimes um, is going to really increase the survivability of any space architecture. Um, that's going to be absolutely essential for all of our, our missile defense capabilities. Um, but the other thing, just kind of stepping back from the technologies, I would say something that's really lacking today is we don't really have the same level of debate publicly that we had in the 1980s. Uh, I think it's easy to forget that in the 1980s, uh, SDI was, was a topic of not just national U.S. debate, but really international debate. Um, and you had folks like Jim Abramson, the head of SDIO, publicly debating Dick Garwin, um, very prominent scientist who was was really skeptical of SDI. And I think it would be valuable to have a much more prominent national conversation today uh, about, well, what is the importance of missile defense? If we're thinking about these wide variety of threats and ensuring that the public understands what's at stake, um, because right now I would say missile defense is, is compared to the 1980s, 
Um, it's clearly very important, especially in light of, of what we see in Ukraine. And yes, it is generating discussion, but I would say it's still a much more niche discussion than what we saw in the 1980s. And I think it'd be valuable for it to be a, a much more prominent part of the, the national discussion on national security matters in light of what we're seeing, not just in Ukraine, but thinking more broadly about great power competition. Well, Aaron, Tom, thank you for helping me make this a national discussion on Reaganism today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.